Take your Bible and look with me at Psalm 85 for just a moment. There's a verse there I want to begin with. Um, really kind of goes along with what Barry just said. How many of us pray for revival just very sporadically? We'll ask God for revival. We know the church needs it. Uh, we know the church really needs it. We know the nation needs it. Um, um, but we ask once or twice, we'll pray it maybe once or twice a year. Listen, they had come back into the land of uh, promise after the Babylonian captivity. That's probably the background of Psalm 85. Uh, they start off by saying, O oh Lord, you showed favor to your land. You've restored the captivity of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. But now look at what they say, beginning in verse, Restore us, O God, of our salvation. Cause your indignation toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will, will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not yourself revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Um, just keep that verse in the back of your mind as I talk to you tonight and get back to some history that I want to share with you. In London, back in the 1800s, the people noticed something about errand boys uh, that were making their way through the streets of London. Now, do you know what errand boys are? I saw a picture, believe it or not, of errand boys leaving the White House on December the 7th, 1941, going out to evidently to members of Congress, uh, with a message from the president. That was in 1941. It was just a brief picture. I've got a, I, I subscribe to a Twitter feed that does historical stuff, and it was kind of interesting to see that, how all of these errand boys were running out. Well, everybody didn't have cell phones in the 1800s, and uh, they didn't have instant messaging, and they didn't have email. So what they would do is if there was a CEO of a company wanted to send a message over, wanted to get a message over to a guy that maybe was his customer or whatever. He'd take, an, he'd take a pen and actually write a letter. And he would give it to an errand boy who would run that over to whoever he was sending it to. So the streets of London were filled with these errand boys. And somebody picked up that these errand boys, as they went through the streets, were whistling, but they were, it was horrible. They were all off tune. And they thought, what is wrong with these errand boys? All of them are off tune. Well, what they discovered was this, and it took the musicians, now uh, Kirkwood is gone to the choir, but it took musicians uh, to answer the question, and they said this, when they had put the bales, the new bales, up in Westminster Abbey, those bales were just slightly off. In their tune, they were just slightly off. And all of the errand boys who were in the streets constantly throughout the day, hearing that subconsciously began to whistle just slightly out of tune. What you listen to subconsciously has an impact on your life. There's a thing called TV in your house. And it has a tremendous impact on how you see things. That's why I warn Christians in the church. Paul warns Christians in the church. 
You be careful who you listen to or it's going to eventually have an impact on your life. I listen now to my children, especially my son who's in the ministry, and I'll pick up on things that he will say, and I'll think, well, by golly, I know where he got that from. That came from me. He's kind of, in a sense, parroting what he heard his father say. Well, um, that happens in life. We take on what's around us. And the church has done that with the culture. We've taken on a great deal of the culture that we're not even aware of. Things that we embrace in the church today that, let me tell you something, 20 years ago, we would have said, absolutely not. Now, I'm going to start amening myself here. (laughs) But you know what I'm saying is true. Things that we have embraced, that we have allowed to come into the church that 20 years ago, we would have said, there is just absolutely no way that's going to be a part of, uh, of what we're doing. Well, it's happened. And uh, we have, we've done that because of the voices that we have listened to. We copy the culture. And in doing that, things change around us, and we're never even aware of what's going on. Now, I'll say that, and I'll say this. Everybody talks about being in a postmodern society. Folks, let me tell you, there are a few historians who understand this and a few theologians who know this. We're no longer in a postmodern society. We're in a post-postmodern society, and it is becoming increasingly a violent post-postmodern society and all that that means. Well, I tell you that to say this. In the church, we see all of this happening, and so many people are just giving up on church. They're just walking away from church. And I'm not talking about those that are 18 years old or 19 or 20 or 21. I'm talking about people that are 60 years old and 65 and 68 who grew up in the church that are just walking away from it and just saying, well, this is the way it's gone. This is the thing, you know, I just don't know what's happening to the church. I don't know what's going on with Christianity anymore, it just looks like we're defeated because there is just this ebbing away of church in the life of the people in our culture anymore. But now let me, let me just draw an analogy for you. Um, I've stood out on the beach and I've watched, especially when there'd be a super moon uh, and there would be a, a super low tide or a super high tide. I've stood out there on the beach in St. Augustine, which is a wide beach to begin with, and you just watch the tide, and it just recedes, and it recedes, and it recedes, and you just think, well, my Lord, I'm going to be able to walk, I'll be able to walk halfway across to Europe with the ways this thing is going, and you just watch it recede, and it recedes, and it recedes, but I know this in the back of my mind, there's something building out there in that ocean. I don't understand the physics of it all, but I know that something is building out there in the ocean. And that pretty soon, something is going to happen, and there is going to sweep back in waves up onto this shore. Well, the same thing is true spiritually. You can watch things spiritually. You can see this in history. You can see it in churches. You can see it even in your life. 
that there are moments where it seems that spiritually things just ebb away and away and away, and you just wonder, it's, it's, it's all for naught now. It's gone. There, there is no more impact in this culture by the church, and it just ebbs. But let me tell you something. There is something building spiritually out there in the deeps. And there is coming a day before Christ comes back when there is going to be a wave of the Spirit of God that will sweep back over very dry shores. Now, if y'all were Pentecostal, y'all be falling in the floor right now. <laughs> now, that's a good word. That ought to be an encouragement to every believer. The same will happen in a church. I've seen it. I've lived long enough. I've pastored long enough that I've seen churches cycle through this. There will be an ebbing away. It'll go out. It'll go out. and You'll begin to think what has happened. There's nothing left to the church. But let me tell you, there is something building in a spiritual dimension, and I'm waiting for the wave to hit Valleydale. I'm waiting for it to hit. Because out there in the deeps, there's something building in the spiritual dimension. And it will happen. May not happen with me. I want to be a part of the building of it, though. It happens in history. And that's where I'm leading to. I'm taking you to that. There is a building of a wave that is going to hit, and it's going to be called the Reformation. But there's an awful lot that's got to take place before you get to the Reformation. Uh, a lot of things have got to happen before you get there. Uh, I left you the last time, I left you with, <laughs> with Henry IV standing in the snows of Canossa and uh, Gregory VII, who was in the inside of the castle there at Canossa, who wouldn't let him in. Well, you remember the story. We went through that. What you had for the first time is this. You had a man who was withholding the grace of God. Now, do you think a man can withhold the grace of God? Well, you had a pope who was withholding the grace of God, and then when he decided, he decided, I'll give the grace of God. Well, that is that is a Greek term that you learn early on in Greek, and it's called baloney. That's, well, I did that. Dr. Chesney came, and he gave you the seven sacraments. He talked about that. That's part of what made the Dark Ages so dark is what began to take place with all of that. Now, tonight, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to begin to give you what were the events that led up to the Reformation, because let me tell you something, it didn't happen in a vacuum. Uh, there had been an ebbing, all of that. And the reason why he shared those seven sacraments with you last week, they are sacerdotal. I've used that term before. That is, they conveyed salvation. You're getting so far away from the Word of God. You're getting so far away. You're watching the tide. It goes out and it's going out and it's going out. But there's a building out there in the deep. And there's going to be a wave, and that wave is going to happen with a little monk by the name of Martin Luther. By the way, let me tell you, it really happens before him. You start having some of these waves roll in, and that's what I want to lead you to. Or Dr. Chesney's going to give you some of that in the next couple of weeks. I get on a plane Sunday night, and I fly to Tel Aviv. And um, I'll be there sometime Monday afternoon, uh, and he's going to teach you until I get back. I'll be back on the 18th, and so I'll be here on the night of the 19th. 
and I'll teach on the night of the 19th, and I'll preach that Sunday morning, and it will be Christmas. And then we can say, thank the Lord, that's done with for another year. All right? Good? Good. And I, I want to tell you, folks, I'm tired. We moved in. We stayed at our house for the first time last night. And I've seen fire, and I've seen rain. And, and I have no shower, so if Debbie and I start smelling kind of gamey around here, you'll just have to, we don't, we don't, we don't, but we had to move in, and I want to tell you something, I, I say this, Lord, reverently, I am not moving again. I'm, if I, I'm going from that house to a hole in the ground. Well, I will, it, one day, it, that's what it'll be, because I'm not going to do that again. Anyway. Let me give you all of this stuff that happens that's building. There's this building that is taking place for the Reformation. How does all this just come about? Well, there's some things that are happening that are taking place that are going on that build up to the Reformation. You've got all of these crusades that are going to happen, all of the stuff with knights and uh, Richard and the Lionhearted and Saladin and all the stuff that little boys love to read, you've got the Crusades, they're costing Europe out the nose. It is going to forever change Europe. Uh, we don't ever study the Crusades in America. By the way, let me tell you, the rest of the world, especially the Middle East, Europe somewhat, the Middle East, yes. Uh, even the Jews in Israel, uh, because the Battle of Acre took place there, the Battle of uh, of Hatton, the horns of Hatton took place there. All of these things of the Crusades took place right there uh, all through um, uh, the nation of, of Israel. They study this. We don't pay it any attention, and we don't understand why these people still have animosity toward us. Toward us. Well, it goes back to a lot of this. You've got these Crusades that are a very big part, and it changes literally. It's one of those moments that, that turns human history. Uh, through the Crusades. You've got a new pope. His name is Boniface the uh, Eighth, and Boniface the Eighth comes, and he does something. I've got some pictures for you. There he is right there. Y'all, I knew you'd recognize him when you saw him. Um, this guy does something pretty interesting. He declares himself emperor. He's not just going to be pope. He's going to be emperor as well. And in doing that, he comes and he says this, to disagree with the Pope is to disagree with the church. And if you disagree with the church, then you're out of the church. So in other words, he was saying this, I am infallible and you cannot disagree with me. And if you disagree with me, you're out. In other words, you, you lose your salvation. You have no hope. You're headed for eternal loss. Well, all of this is coming right on the cusp of the Reformation. Now, guys, let me tell you, in this period, there's several things that are happening. I wanted to give you a timeline. Beginning in about the 14th century, the 1300s, you're going to have the Renaissance. I'm going to end with that. I'm going to talk a little bit about that and show you what that is. We're still experiencing the results of the Renaissance today. The Renaissance will, will eventually lead into the Enlightenment and neoclassical, a revival of the neoclassical uh, thought and philosophy, and it is, which is very, listen, it's all secular humanism, and it has, it has absolutely ruined the Western world. 
Um, but I'll, I'll close out with that. You've got the Renaissance, 14th century, 1300s. That begins to go on. Then you're going to have the Reformation in the um, 1500s. It's going to come up. And these things will carry on at the same time. It's kind of interesting to watch how these things influence the whole of society, and they're kind of going on at the same, at the same time. But as people go through it, they're not aware of it. They're not aware of it. You don't walk around every day saying, you know what, we're, we're going through post, post-modernism right now. You, you, we're just living our lives. Uh, I imagine the night that Martin Luther went down to nail the 95 theses on the, on the uh, door of the Wittenberg church, that people walked past him and all they saw was just a monk. I, I imagine there were some folks walked by and they saw him nailing those things up on the door and they just thought, well, that's a monk working on the church door. They impervious to what was going on. Luther himself had no idea what he was doing. He had no idea what, what that one single act would do. But there is, this, there is this stirring that's going on in Europe. All of this stuff that's happening that I'm going to begin to list for you is, is turning up the heat in Europe. It's going to begin to cook. It's kind of like a fuse. You ever watched... Um, Mission Impossible, where that guy strikes the match. Don't want to have a video of that. He, the guy strikes the match, and he lights the fuse, and that fuse just starts to burn, 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 and it's just burning all the way down. Well, that's what's happening in Europe right then. Right before then, that's what's going on. That's taking place, and it's beginning to cook. And let me tell you something. What's going to happen is this, is it's going to reach a boiling point, and it's going to explode. So what are all the things that lead into the Reformation, that lead up to the Reformation? Well, the first one, you're not going to believe. You're going to think I'm Al Gore, which I, I can promise you I'm not. But the first thing is this, climactic change. There is a change in the weather pattern. Now, folks, let me just tell you, that's been going on since God created the earth, since the fall of man. Scientists have studied the Middle Ages, and they've discovered this. There was a degree, one degree drop in the temperature during the period that we call the Middle Ages. Winters were longer. Summers were shorter. Uh, the growing season was much shorter. Um, the winters were harsh. They were a lot more severe. Uh, the summers just did not last, and they could not grow crops the way they had before, that was taking place. Uh, so there, you had food shortages all through Europe. People were not able to eat, and the people began to think to themselves, uh, what is God doing to us? You know, why, why is this happening to us? Why is this taking place? Uh, at the same time, there were unbelievable floods through Europe in the 1300s. Uh, you can read about this. It was just kind of a bizarre period of time. But through the 1500s, uh, through the 1300s, there were all of these floods that just flooded out crops and flooded out people. In 1315, there was a flood that was so bad uh, that it wiped out all of the food supply. And what I'm going to tell you is true, and I tell you this to show you how bad it was, that people began in Europe began to cannibalize their own children. 
That is, they started to eat their children. Now, we thought about that a time or two when ours were young, but we decided, nah, we just, we'll let them live. Um, but that's how bad it got in Europe. And so when, it, when these floods came and it washed away and you had this, this horrible thing of what do we eat, they began to say, God, what are you doing to us? Why is all this happening? Why is all this taking place? Now, this is constantly going to be asked by the people. What's going on? Why is God doing this? Why is God allowing this to take place? So the first happens to be literally a change in the weather patterns. The second thing is war in Europe. And I don't mean just any war. I mean a war that lasts for a 100 years. It's called the Hundred Years' War. There really is, in history, a hundred-year war. 1337, it begins, and it's between the two strongest nations in Europe, England and France. And this is where things really get bad between the French and the English. Uh, all of the English kings honestly came from France. Did you know that? Um, from Anjou. And uh, the, uh, what were their names? The Planta... Plantagenets, Plantagenets. That's who they were. They were French, and they were fighting against the Valois, the French kings, the Valois. I just love to say that. Um, and the reason why they were doing that was because these, the English kings all spoke French. They didn't speak English. And they thought, well, we will rule not only the English, but we're French. We're going to rule the French as well. And so they started this war that lasted for a hundred years. They fought, and it decimated Europe. Um, you know, you stop and think about this. Kings would be born. They would grow up. They would come to the throne. They would fight this war. They would die, and their sons would grow up to be king. And they did this for a hundred years. And it wasn't just England and France fighting each other. The German states started fighting each other. And then you got down into Italy, and the, and the Italian city-states started fighting each other. And let me just give you a concept of what this was like in Italy, the city-states. These cities were like a state. It would be like Birmingham was its own state, and Montgomery was its own state. And so we had the National Guard of Birmingham and the National Guard of Montgomery, and they met somewhere in the middle, and they just started fighting each other. Uh, that's what was happening throughout Europe, and it lasted for a hundred years so that one in five males in Europe died. One in five. Now, that doesn't sound like much, but that was a lot of people that died in this war. Well, it was over at about 1453. That ends, but uh, in the French, believe it or not, the Fl French actually win that thing and because of that, it creates such unrest inside of England that all of these houses, like the House of Lancaster, the House of York, start raising their own armies, and they begin to fight. And those two houses especially, and that's the same family, the Plantagenets. That's the same family, two branches of the same family, the Lancasters and the Yorks begin to fight one another. And it's called the War of the Roses. 
because the house of, um, what was it, the house of Lancaster was the red rose. They were symbolized by a red rose, and the house of York was symbolized by a white rose. And they began to fight one another. It tore the nation apart. And so that's what, you, that's what you've got going on in England. And you've, you've got it all through Europe, all of this war, all of these people that are being killed. They're being slaughtered. That's the second thing. The third thing that's happening at this time are the Crusades. If war in Europe is not enough, let's go start a war somewhere else. So the Crusades uh, get started mainly because, well, there are a lot of reasons why the Crusades happen. Some of it is economic, but the church, the church does this in order to draw people into the church and to motivate them, and they say, the Muslims have taken the Holy Land, they've taken the land of, of Christ, they've taken Bethlehem, they've taken Jerusalem, they've taken all of the sacred places, we must go. And so they raise these huge armies, and they send them off. One wave after another, they go off uh, into the Middle East, into Israel. In fact, this year, I was, I was in Acre, uh, which is in very northern part of Israel and at the Crusader fortress there uh, where the Crusaders landed. They landed their forces there and they fought their way into Israel. That's where Richard the Lionhearted gets going. So you've got all of that. All of that's taking place. Into the 1400s, Constantinople falls. Now, do you remember the Bishop of Rome and the Bishop of Constantinople? Um, there was the Rome in the west and Rome in the east. And so the church kind of mimics that. You have, the, of course, the bishop of Rome becomes powerful and really is more powerful than the bishop of Constantinople. But Constantinople falls. That was, that was where Rome really, that was the last vestige of Rome. And what happens is they start fleeing out of there ahead of these Muslim armies and they're bringing with them all of these parchments and all of these books. Now, we're talking about the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, and they're bringing all of this stuff that the West had not seen. They couldn't read. They couldn't write. I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. That was part of why the Dark Ages was so dark, and they're bringing all of these parchments. By the way, do you know what those parchments are going to be? Do you know what they're going to do with that? A guy by the name of Erasmus is going to go through some of these parchments that have come out of Constantinople, and you're going to get the first copy of a Greek New Testament that he's going to put together out of all of that. So all of that's coming over to the West as these Muslims are coming in. By 1517, now what happens in 1517? Somebody other than Barry tell me what happens then. Luther nails the 95 Theses to the door. That's what we like. But it's the same year that the Muslims are at the gates of Vienna. They're knocking on the door of taking Europe. That's taking place. So you've got all of this that's going on with, with the Crusades and all that happens with that and the mass migration of people that are fleeing from that's taking place. Let me give you the fourth thing. The fourth thing is the bubonic plague, the Black Death. Europe now is going to be devastated. Can you believe, man, what a horrible time to live. Um, 
All of this, now we know today what causes that. We know it's an infected flea on the back of an infected rat. And it bites somebody and it gives you. And what happens when when that happens to you is that you bleed just underneath your skin. You bleed out basically without blood coming out of your body, but but basically just under the skin. And that's why you turn this crimson, bluish, blackish, sick color. Um, But that's not why they called it the Black Death. They called it the Black Death because you could catch it so easy and they had no... It was terrible. It was horrible. It was horrifying. You didn't know, you didn't know how you could get it, and you didn't, nobody knew what to do about it. Um, you would die a horrible death from that. Well, it sweeps across. Let me tell you how bad it was. It broke out in 1347. In 1347, the average life expectancy was 34 years of age. Now, they, if you lived to be 34, you would consider that that's, he lived a full life. Bless his heart. He's gone now. That's, that was the life expectancy in 1347, 34 years of age. This breaks out in 1347, and when it does, three years later, three years later, say about 1350, the life expectancy had gone from 34 years of age in Europe to 17. 17. If you made it to you were the age of 17, you made it to an old age at that point in time. And people, they're crying out, God, what are you doing? What's going on? Why is this happening to us? And there were some interesting things that came out, bizarre, but interesting things that came out of this. One of the things that came out of this was self-flagellation. You had entire cities that would turn out and people would beat each other thinking that this would appease God. That we've done some kind of sin, we've committed some kind of sin, and we'll just go out and we will willingly receive a beating because it might would appease God and would satisfy God and God would turn away his wrath from us. You know the other thing that happened? Now, this is interesting. This happened in Germany. And we're talking mid-1300s in Germany. They began to blame the Jews for it. And they started killing Jews. And in Moss, Germany, they killed every single Jew in the entire city. Entire towns and communities would get together, go out and find Jews, believing that that's why this plague had come on them was because of the Jews. Isn't that interesting? Because that's going to carry over to a guy in the last century by the name of Adolf Hitler. This whole thought of we've got to purify Germany, we are the superior race, um, and um, the Jews are to blame for everything. There's always somebody to blame, right? Well, that's what's happened. The 1300, horrible time to live, terrible time to live, but something else happens. The fifth thing is the rise of education. Now, all of this is building. Remember, I started out by saying, you know, you, you watch it and it, it, it ebbs and it goes out and it goes out and it goes out, but there's something building out there. 
One of the things that builds toward this Reformation is education. People could not read and write. They couldn't do simple math. Uh, That made the dark ages really dark. There was no such thing as schools, and people were simply illiterate. The only trained people were the clergy, the priests. They were the only ones who could read, the only ones who could write. Now, just hold on to that. They can't read or write. They can't do simple math. They're illiterate in every way. The crusaders are coming back, and as the crusaders are coming back, they're bringing back all kind of literature. They're bringing back all kind of stuff about ancient Greece, about uh, all of the discoveries that Muslims had made. All of this stuff they're bringing back into Europe, and people are curious, and they want to know. And so they begin to hire priests to come and teach them how to read. So if you had a little bit of money, you could go to a priest and say, hey, if you'll come over here to the house a couple of times a week, we'll, we'll pay you this, we'll give you that. But would you come and would you teach me, would you teach my children how to read? And so what you had is you had universities springing up. You know where the, one of the first places a university uh, came about? Paris, of all places. Paris in Prague, at a place in England where farmers would take their oxen and cross them over the river there at this ox ford, the first university sprang up and they named it Clemson University. No, (laughs) Oxford University. Oxford University. And so it was the first university there. Um, so now people are beginning to read, and they're beginning to read stuff that they couldn't read before. So now when the Pope sends out an edict and he says, uh, the people are to do this, that, or the other, they can go up, they can read the edict, and they begin to say, well, wait a minute, I, I'm not so sure about that. That doesn't sound exactly right to me. Well, what, what did Boniface VIII already say? You can't disagree with me. You better not disagree with me. To disagree with me is to disagree with the church, and to disagree with the church means there's no hope for you. So people now are beginning to, they're beginning to read. They've got a hunger now. We want to know about some of this stuff. Number six, this is kind of interesting, friars. Now, I'm not talking about chickens. I'm talking about men who go out in the streets and preach. Now, that's what a friar Um, means. That's what a friar did. It came from the Latin fratrum, which means the unity of brothers. And these men who call themselves um, friars wanted to do this. They just wanted to get out in the street and preach the Word of God to the people. And they wanted to go out and just help the average person. Let's get out of the church. Let's get out to where the people are. Let's go to their place and let's minister to them. Now, that was a whole new concept, especially in the Roman church. Um, And you've got a guy by the name of Peter Waldo. You ever heard of him? Peter Waldo. Peter Waldo comes from a family that's fairly affluent, but he gives all of it away. He He puts the house in his wife's name. They even did that back then. He puts the house in the wife's name, He took everything else he had, and he gave it to people, and he took to the streets. I think I've got a picture of Waldo. There he is right there. He took to the streets just preaching, 
and just walking through the streets helping anybody that he could help, doing anything for him that he could do. The people had not seen anything like this before because all the preaching had, had taken place in the church, in Latin. Uh, if there was ever a sermon, it was, it was in Latin. And they, people couldn't understand what was going on. So that's what he did. About an hour and a half from where Deb and I grew up is a whole settlement of Waldensians. They are descendants from the group that Peter Waldo started. And they're in, in the Swannanoa Valley up in North Carolina, in the mountains there, they're all bakers. They're all bakers. All of them are bakers. All the Mennonites are farmers, are, are dairy farmers. And so I grew up knowing about the Waldensians simply because when we'd go up to the mountains, we would... We'd, Daddy would always go by. We'd always go by there, and we'd see him, and I'd always say, well, who are these people, and they dress funny, and all that kind of thing. Well, there's another guy that's doing this too. His name is Francis, and you've heard of him. He's Francis of Assisi. Francis came from a very wealthy family, which he inherited everything, and he gave it all away. Uh, and he took to the streets to preach. That's what he wanted to do. Now, I'm going to tell you something about Francis that most people do not know. Francis of Assisi went to Egypt because he wanted to preach to the Egyptian sultan. He got an audience with him, and he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to this Muslim Egyptian sultan and told him, you must be saved. And the Egyptian sultan was so impressed with the guy's boldness and his courage that he didn't kill him. He let him go. But that was Francis of Assisi, and that's, that was his heart. His heart was to take the gospel to the people and to preach. Now, let me give you the seventh thing. I've got about 11, but this is going to be it right here. Number seven is this, the Renaissance. Now, all of this is going on at the same time. All of this is happening at the same time. This is just life going on. But all of these things are feeding into the whole of the population of Europe. And what it's doing is it's setting it up for this wave to just come rolling in called the Reformation. And when it comes in, the people are ready for it. They want it. They're hungry for it. The seventh thing that is taking place is called the Renaissance. Now, do you know what the word Renaissance means? It's kind of funny. It means rebirth. Rebirth. Now, let me do this. You want a good book? How Then Shall We Live? Is that, is that the right title? Francis Schaeffer. Um, several months ago, a seminary wrote me and said, will you recommend five books for every graduating sem, uh, uh, student at our seminary was Midwestern uh, to read. And the first book I listed was, you must read Francis Schaeffer's uh, How Then Shall We Live? I think it's How Then Shall We Live? Colson has one called How Then Shall We Live? How Shall We Then Live? <laughs> one's got one and one's got the other. You, you look up Schaefer. Now, the next trick is spell Schaefer. Um, S-C-H-A-E-F-F-E-R. Is that right? I'm looking over here, son. You're the guy with the doctorate. Uh, 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 I think that's right. Anyway, if you want to read something, this man was a prophet. 
and he writes about the unraveling of Western civilization, and he'll, he'll point you back to this very thing right here, to the Renaissance. It means new birth. Now, this was going on when the Crusaders came back. I told you they were bringing with them. They brought with them uh, Averro. That was the Muslim philosopher. Maimonides, the Jewish philosopher. They were bringing back all this writing from these guys. And all of this material they were bringing back. And uh, they were bringing back a new world view. Now, let me, let me tell you, the world view that Europe had during the Middle Ages happened to be a Platonic worldview. came from Plato. Plato. Plato's philosophy is basically this. This is a book, but it's only a copy of a book. It's an imperfect copy of a book, but there is an ideal, real book out there somewhere. Out there in another dimension, this is just a copy it's not as good. It's not, as, it's not anything real. This is just an illusion that is here. But the real does exist in another dimension somewhere. Now, that was the platonic thought. That was the worldview of Europe at that time. And that is that this world is just an illusion. All this stuff is not real. None of this is real. Now, I've got a picture of uh, the school of Athens, Raphael painted this right here. And if you can see it, you have got Plato on the right. Plato's facing you. In the middle of that picture, all of these others are different philosophers. I used to know who they were, but I've forgotten that mess now. On this side is Aristotle. Now, you'll look, Plato is doing this. Aristotle is doing this. Plato dies. Aristotle says, no, Plato was wrong. Uh, this is not an illusion. This is the real thing. I can hold it. It has texture. I can feel it. I can read it. It does something in me to my emotions. Uh, and I can see it. And I can decipher it. And I can understand it. And I can go through the emotions of what this is. It's the same thing with this podium. This podium is real. It has texture. I can feel it. I can see it. It, it, uh, it is useful in this life. And so Aristotle said, no, it's what's in this world that counts. It's everything here is the real. What you see is the real. Aristotle had this ethereal concept of that there's something out there beyond. So he's pointing up like this, and Aristotle is like this. No, it's here. It's what's down here on this earth. That is what gives birth to the Renaissance. That is essentially the Renaissance. That is uh, the whole concept that this life is what's real. You, you do, let me tell you where it goes back to. It goes back to Epicurus, uh, Epicurean uh, philosophy. Epicurus said, we don't know if there's any God out there or, or who the gods are, or what they are. So just go knock yourself out. Go enjoy life. Just have pleasure, 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 pleasure. Do you see the impact that is on the Western civilization today? Come all that way to today. Well, let me show you the difference between the medieval concept 
of Platonic thought and the Aristotelian philosophy of, um, of the Renaissance, of, of, of reality. Now, I'm going, to show you, I'm going to show you that. This, by the way, is a piece of uh, Renaissance art right here. Now, let me take you and show you the Middle Age art uh, that is more Byzantine. It's just to carry over the Byzantine. It's always, that's Christ. That you, you can tell that's the Last Supper that's there. Or, or that's, uh, maybe that's Lazarus, and the dogs are licking his sores, and this is Christ. And it's all about Christ. It's all about Mary. It's all about the disciples. It's all about what you see in Scripture. Those kind of things. You see, it's flat, it's dull, it's drab. That is the art of the Middle Ages. I think I've got another picture or two, or do I? See, there's another one. There's the crucifixion. You always have these halo painted around the saints' heads because they're saints now, you see. There's Christ. There's the body. They're, they're taking the body of Christ off of the cross. All right, now, here we go, and we're going to go into the realism now of, of uh, the Renaissance. You see that? There's depth, there's color, there's emotion that is there. Uh, there is symmetry. Um, uh, you, you can tell the muscles on the human body. You can look at that. I think I've got another picture too uh, for that. Look, there's, that's Renaissance right there. That's the Renaissance. Leonardo da Vinci. Why does she have that little wispy smile that she has? Only her headdress and nose for sure. Um, there. You see what happens here? Now you have these cherubs and they're surrounded by nature. That's what's happening. Everything now is man-focused. Everything now is this life, this world, nature, what I can learn, what I can conceive, what I can grasp, what I can understand. It's all about man. It's all about me. It's all about pleasure in this life. All of that now is, is building, building, building. And you're going to begin to have these certain men, Hus, who's going to come and he's going to begin to preach the word of God. And people are going to be drawn out of the church to men like Hus. You're going to get to, um, you'll get to some others. There's Hus, there's, of course, Savannarola had long been gone by now. Uh, but you've got these men, you, you, you're going to get to uh, the Lollards. And who is it with the, who? Um, Wycliffe. Wycliffe in England, who's going to translate Scripture. And these men are going to begin to go out, these Lollards, and they're going to begin to preach the Word of God to people. So you've got all of this building. There are about four or five more things, but I'm, I'm going to leave that for, for Dr. Chesney to give to you next time. All of this building up to now, there's going to be a massive wave that is going to wash over Europe, and it's going to be called the gospel of Jesus Christ.